Hello, everyone. My name is Joe McManus. I'm a shareholder of Carlton Fields Law Firm uh, in the Washington, D.C. office. I'm uh, heading up their, our government contract practice, and I'm part of the construction practice group. Uh, I'm also the president of Sentinel Consulting, LLC, which is one of now four Carlton Fields consultancies. Uh, Sentinel is a consultancy of distinguished experts providing full service for the construction and real estate industries. This is the second of a series of podcasts dealing with government contracts. Uh, there's, a, you know, there's a certain transition from, government, from the commercial world to the government world as commercial world shrinks as a result of COVID. Um, contractors gravitating in the government contract arena find an, a, find an arena which is full of benefits and potholes at the same time. For the first podcast, uh, my guest was Judge Paul Williams, formerly the Chief Judge of the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals. Uh, I'm most pleased today to have my good friend Scott McLeod here with me. Uh, Scott and I met well over 10 years ago in North Carolina. Uh, well, he was a construction executive uh, with his feet in both the commercial and the government world. Scott, if you can, uh, love to have you introduce yourself to our to our guests out here. Well, thanks, Joe. I appreciate uh, being able to participate in the podcast. Uh, my name is Scott McLeod. I work for DPR Construction. Um, in, into this podcast, I bring about 35 years of construction experience. Uh, I did a stint in um, the Air Force. Uh, also did some graduate studies in research and construction at uh, MIT. And I want to put in a plug for my undergraduate uh, degree at University of Massachusetts. Uh, the University of Massachusetts this past Saturday uh, won the NCAA men's hockey championships for their first NCAA championship. And I was pretty proud of that. Wonderful. Um, I'll give an overview of the podcast today. Um, we're going to deal with... Um, challenges and opportunities of uh, doing work in, in both arenas. Um, and the topics that we want to discuss um, fall into three categories. I guess the first one is public work uniqueness. Uh, what, what sets public work apart from, from commercial world? Um, also, we want to talk about the intersection of public and private work. They seem to be uh, moving closer and closer together at times. And uh, we can end with some parting comments, uh, some crystal ball thoughts from Scott, as well as some, some advice as to, um, uh, to deal with the trends that are out there today. Um, Scott, on the uniqueness of public works, um, we talked a couple of weeks ago about um, uh, unilateral changes, uh, something that uh, is, is really unique to the government practice. Can you give us some, your thoughts on that and some examples of a... Of a its challenges as well as its opportunities. Yeah. Well, first I'll, I'll hit on public work. Public work is a very large market and encompasses a lot of different uh, contracting delivery methods, types of work, um, and you know, and also different owners in a, in a way. You, you work for city customers, uh, county, state, federal. Um, but I, I think the one common thing I see in, in public work is that all of them are they're probably their number one priority is how to protect the U.S. taxpayer and how to basically eliminate unethical or the perception of unethical behavior in that whole 
you know, design, construction, and delivery process. And so typically what you see is a lot more lump sum hard bid work uh, that's easy to uh, sort of segregate. You design it, you send out documents into the marketplace, you bid the work, you open them up publicly, and then you just make sure everybody honors their contracts. And that way it's very transparent. Um, the public work is it's being financed by individual companies or people, and they're a little bit looser. Their number one priority is it's their money, and they want to deliver a value-adding asset as fast as possible. That's when they can start generating income. They're a little bit looser. They're a little more, I would say, innovative and creative in some of the mechanisms they use to expedite their work. Um, I, I, I'm going to tell a quick story. The way I kind of look at the real difference is I got out of the Air Force a number of years ago, and ended up in Boston working on a very large mixed-use project called Rose Wharf on the Boston Harbor. And I was a project manager doing a little bit of contract administration, change orders. And, and I went to my boss and every week we'd kind of go through the different changes we're looking at with the different suppliers. And, and I showed him a way that I had a supplier that put in a big change and I showed him a way by looking at their contract. I looked for some not loopholes, but I figured out ways that we didn't have to pay that claim or that change order. And, and the first question he asked me is he said, well, did you look at their proposal and what they included in their scope of work? And, and did they include that? And my first comment was, well, why is that even relevant? I, I've got the contract and the contract says they don't get it. And he said, but is it the fair thing to do? And, and it always struck me. And so I walked back and and, and, and I'm not saying that the public work, when you're working in public work projects, that they're not fair. But what I will tell you is that the way they manage those contract, uh, those projects is by contract. And so I always tell my teams that if you were doing public work, you, you read it, you understand it, and you follow the contract. And if the contract says, get up every morning and run around the building five times, then do it and document it, whether it adds value or not. So I think that's the big difference I see sometimes is, is if you are doing public work, you better know the contract and you better follow it. If I would say the same thing for private work, but sometimes there's a little more flexibility in the private work. Yeah, those are some great perspectives. I mean, I also was in the Air Force assigned to the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals as a, as a JAG captain years ago. You know, we had one case um, called, I'll never forget, it's called Keiji Dasha, which is a Japanese here. It was an American base in Japan. And they called for stripping of the floors every every couple of months. And the contractor said, look, he, he said, that's nuts. I mean, what have you stripped the floors every couple of months? You're not going to have a floor in like four years. But nonetheless, the, the, the contract was crystal clear. It wasn't about polishing the floors or stripping the floor. And that's, uh, you know, that's the way the case went went on down, you know, and um and likewise, you're dealing with contracting officers. They're the only ones who've got authority. And, you know, you're, you're, you think you're dealing with the resident engineer with authority and you're not, you know. So, exactly. it's a, so those your, your comments on that on private versus public work and at overviews was very helpful. All right. Yeah. So now you did you did ask quickly about the uh, unilateral change orders or yeah. what I call zero dollar change orders. Mm -hmm. um, after that project, I went out into the Boston Harbor cleanup project, um, and, and we learned some valuable lessons. At the time, we thought by taking some really bright, young project managers doing big, large commercial work in Boston, the market dies, so we send them all out to Deer Island, the Boston Harbor cleanup project, um, which was a public works project. And what made that unique was 
the for years Boston had been uh, polluting the harbor, and so they were under actually um, they they were they were being it was being enforced by the the EPA that they had to clean it up, and they had to clean it up within a certain period of time, or they would be fined. So it was really important to get this thing built quickly. This this big uh, wastewater treatment plant. So they put into the contracts uh, this this mechanism to say that if we had a change order or a claim and we went back and, and we submitted it and we could not come to an agreement, then the MWRA, who was the authority running the project, could give us a $0 change order, force us to do the work, and we would have to address this at a later date. And, and 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 I and I always believed that they took that to the extreme because, as you can imagine, everybody ended up in court at the end of that job. But it was built, and it was built on time, and 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 it was a very painful project. And and I believe that a lot of the contractors did some really great work out there. And for those efforts, they ended up in court for quite a while at the end. Yeah, I mean, I remember before the AIA, uh, you know, changed the yep. or added the concept of the construction change directive. We had the old field changes, which sort of put you in the same situation. The owner would order you to do some work. <laughs> you do the work, and then he or she would contest whether or not it was a change to start off with, and you were you ended up funding it all. You know, with the um, with the construction change directive, at least you're getting paid concurrently. You know, against an exactly. estimate that's set by the architect. But the diff- very different in the in the unilateral change arena where you. You're not getting paid currently. You're you're getting paid, hopefully, downstream. Um, and it takes out the requirement to force the parties to sit down and resolve it up front. And, and yeah. that's the part that hurt. Well, let's talk about sit down and resolve things up front. I mean, you know, in, in the in the commercial arena, you know, you're you have the ability to negotiate contract terms. Well, but how do you find how do you find living in the in the government arena where uh, you're dealing with the issue of responsiveness to Responding to solicitations. Yeah, well, the, the, the first two things is, is, well, the first is it is very hard to negotiate government contracts. Uh, if you look at, for example, the state of North Carolina, I think the attorney general puts together the state contract. And so then all the different state organizations, whether it's universities or, you know, or, or state entities, they have to use that contract. And so when we try to negotiate those contracts, their first thing is well, we're not authorized to, to negotiate it. It is what it is, unless you want to go to the attorney general and then you have to have him change it. And guess what? He's not going to do it. Um, so what happens is you try to make that determination is, one, can I live with these terms? And two, can I mitigate the terms and, and, and still be effective working for the customer? And unfortunately, in our industry, a lot of times contractors convince themselves that, well, you know, this is a good customer. They're not going to use that contract on us. And, and actually, sometimes state agencies will tell you that. They'll say, oh, don't worry about it. We're, you know, we've never done that before, you know, and, 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 and we can fall into that trap. Now, sometimes I would tell you that they don't push certain things. They, they try to work with you. They try to negotiate with you. But in other cases, that's not the case. So um, what I do tell our teams is when you get when we do public work, the first thing I want you to do is go through that whole contract and identify all the notification requirements, because no matter, once again, this gets back to fair, no matter if you did a change and you're entitled to that change, if you didn't submit it at the right time, if you didn't document it correctly, if you didn't put the owner on notice, you don't get paid for it. 
And so it's very important to know what those notification procedures are. Yeah. What, what about the cast of characters on, on government contracts as compared with the, the commercial arena? And uh, who's got authority? Who doesn't have authority? And, uh, you know, and who's got the ability to make a deal like uh, you're talking about here uh, to uh, resolve something in a sort of civilized fashion? Well, it, it's really interesting. You know, the, the, the public, you know, the public entities, like you said, it's really important to understand who is authorized to make the changes, because what will happen is when you're out in the field working with a clerk of the works or you're, you're maybe even working with a program manager they hire, they're they're very eager to say, oh, just take care of that. Or, hey, you go do that and then we'll we'll deal with this later. And and they kind of just want to keep the job going. And, and our teams fall into that trap and, and then they do things. Um, so so uh, I was involved in following up on a, a school we did in uh, Florida. And what had happened was the superintendent, uh, they made some big changes to get the to get the project, you know, really to, to deal with changing, you know, kind of demographics in the region. And so but the problem is, if you open up a school a day late, you might as well open up a year late. So the superintendent worked with the CM at that time got them to accelerate the work so she can get the students in on time. She retired before the job's over. Everything was documented. You know, the, 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 the CM had, you know, emails from her, you know, meeting minutes, the whole thing. But when the new administration came in, the first thing when, when the CM finished, they went back with the change order and they said, well, what's this for? And they said, well, you know, we accelerated for it. And they said, well, we're not going to pay that. Do you have a change order? And it was, well, no. And, and why would you do that? You know, that's not what your contract says. And it says, yeah, but but we we worked it through her and and the contractor never got paid. Uh, whether they were entitled to it or not, the issue was they did not follow the contract. And because they took direction from somebody who who would have honored it probably, but was no longer there. Yeah, I had a, um, we were talking about the difference of characters that are on the job site. You know, I mean, I remember Algernon Blair was a great contractor. They're out of uh, out of Alabama, and they they did nothing but hard money job. And I went to the Richmond Airport, and uh, I went to the trailer, and there was a sign outside which says, "Don't come in here unless you smoke." Uh, and I walked in, and there was a guy who you would never see on a private job, but he was huddled over a desk and he was pumping out notice letters, okay, on a on a da- on a daily basis. But uh, it shows you the difference between the two characters, or. It, it, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of wasted work, and uh, mm-hmm. I had a uh, an attorney. I was uh, we we had a litigation a number of years ago, and I was having dinner with him, and uh, he was a very high end attorney out of New York, probably charged more than you guys do, uh, Joe. But uh, and and, I'm and sure. when we were talking, <laughs> <laughs> when we were talking, he said, you know, Scott, he said, when your industry embraced customer intimacy, customer focus, the customer is always right. He said, it made my business and probably that of many other lawyers, he said, because you guys walked into a trap. And mm-hmm. and so now we're very clear with our teams is the customer is always right as long as they follow their contract. And, and if you stick with that, you'll be OK. But too often we try to to over deliver to customers and, and we get our teams get themselves in trouble. Well, you know, one one, uh, one positive about government contracting is your ability to protest Okay, protest a job. All right, you didn't get it. You're disappointed. You know, I mean, in, in the private arena, you're sort of disappointed. You may have spent a hundred thousand dollars putting together a proposal. You know, what about uh, what about protests and uh, do do you all use them? Uh, what's what's your what's your view on uh, on protesting government contracts? 
you know, we, we, number one, we don't do as much in my, with the new company I'm with, uh, DPR Construction, we don't do quite as much government work. Um, we do a lot of state and city work. We, we, we don't get into the federal work as much. Um, we have been protesting on jobs ourselves. It's, uh, it's kind of interesting in, in Florida, uh, a lot of the state work, it's, uh, they video the whole presentation and share it with all your competitors. So they share your proposals, they share the videos. And so you, you see a little bit more in the protesting arena down there because people say, well, wait a second. They said they did X, Y, and Z, or they had a safety record. And people will go and research your proposals and things, and then they will put in a protest. Um, typically, we don't see the protest work as much. Um, you know, usually it, it's a lot more work for everybody, but, but typically the government doesn't overthrow a lot of the protests, or at least I don't see that um, happen as much for us. Yeah, and I imagine if you're a protester, uh, a frequent protester, it affects your um, your best value procurement record, all right? Which um, uh, sort of maybe we could shift to that topic right here in this, um, you know, because I'm talking about delivery methods. You know, years ago, it just used to be lump sum. If you're going to do a contract job, you know, whoever was low <laughs> gets the job, all right? And now they're into best value, which is negotiated. Can you give us your views on on the current the current trend with regard to best value and how that uh, how that is beneficial. Well, we used to always say when we when we bid work um, lump sum, uh, you bid exactly what the plans and specs show in what the documents in the bid package ask for. You don't bid what it would cost to actually deliver a full complete building. In many cases, you bid exactly <laughs> yeah. what they ask Good for. Point. Because if you didn't, you wouldn't get the job. Um, so we used to joke, if we want a job, we'd go, okay, well, we need to dig through that and find out where we made a mistake. Because it was always the running joke that people made mistakes, won jobs. Um, in the CM, in, in, which is what we're seeing a lot more in, in state work, uh, certainly uh, city work, county work, and, and, and even the federal government, that's more of a value-based selection. And that's a case where they want to look at the qualifications of the contractors they want to look at the team you're going to propose in, in their experience. And, and then there may be some type of price component, whether it's a pre-construction fee for lump sum, maybe your, your construction fee. Um, the two benefits of that is the government now has more say on they're getting what they believe is the right firm, the experienced firm, the firm that they think will deliver the best value. The second thing is by doing CM at, uh, construction management, whether that's at risk or not at risk, is the builder starts earlier in the process. So now they're engaged in the design and now they're bringing constructability ideas to the design. They're bringing their experience on similar projects, best practices, lessons learned. They help the designer pick more cost-effective systems, materials, uh, components. So I think there's a big value to the owner um, to get their builders in earlier. Now, if you go to, I guess, the, the far extreme, that's integrated project delivery, that's where not only do you bring your designer in, you bring your builder in, and you bring your key trade partners in before you start the design. So now the owner has this program, their vision, and that team now is tasked with designing that to a budget the owner has directly. And that's a real open, transparent, everybody's in the mix, everybody's incentivized the same way um, to get to a number. That I don't see uh, in public. I haven't seen that in public work at all. That's more in, it started out in California. It's more in large hospitals and things like that. 
Yeah, that's pretty exciting, that integrated project delivery method. But I, I agree with you with regard to the um, um, the best value. You know, you're seeing more and more solicitations where they're not looking for a lump sum contractors. They're looking for CMs, all right? And, you know, as they, as, as they, as they rank the, the proposers, you know, price is often the least important function. Right. You know, sometimes they don't even look open the price proposal until you get through the technical proposal and, you know, you're all, they're only talking to the people who had high enough grades on the technical side. So um, I, I think that's here to stay. I don't know how you feel, but it seems to me, it, it, I think the government likes it, you know, like, yeah, like and I like it design build when it first came in. Yeah. And, and I like it also because it's very transparent. If you know what the rating system is and the criteria, you can then compete on apples to apples. What, what happens in the, in the, on the other side, on the commercial side, the private side, is they will go through the whole process and they will open up the numbers. And then they'll come back to the team they really like and they say, gee, we really like you, but it would be, you know, you aren't the cheapest. And, and so with, with <laughs> private clients, they have the right to negotiate for forever, you know, and so you do get into, they don't have to follow certain rules. Um, and, and it's always a negotiation. Yeah. And you mentioned also this safety record, for example, that, that all, that all is put into the, into the, into the process. And whether or not you're a claims person has filed a number of claims or lawsuits, you know, you're listing that. So, you know, Best value really is, in their minds, the, the best value of, of contractor. And, and they um, do. We, they look about, at safety. Or I was just going to say real quick, a couple things. Safety, they look at um, diversity. You know, how are you investing in the community using small, historically underutilized businesses? And they go through those types of things. And you're right. They will ask us to provide information on all the open lawsuits we have right now, litigation. And mm -hmm. and this is, yeah. as you know, a pretty litigious build, uh, business. So. A lot of contractors struggle with how do I, how do I present that in a good way? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you won, <laughs> I guess, is one way to present it. Uh, um, what about, I guess, the final thing here is terminations, okay? And the, and the use of terminations for convenience and terminations for default. Remember in the Air Force, we used to call them T for C's and T for D's. Um, uh, what, what's what's your view on on that in the in the public arena and whether or not they're they're used? Well, certainly as a company, the last thing you want to do is be terminated for cause, right? Uh, because that is another thing how they measure people, you know. And and we see that in, in commercial as, in, as well as private is have do you have you completed every job? And if you didn't, what happened? Um, it is very expensive to terminate a project for convenience or for cause. Um, we were involved in a, uh, or I was involved in a project in, in Miami where um, the company I was with at the time lost the job. Uh, the company that won it, they had a lot of friction with the owner. The owner came back to us and said, hey, we're thinking about terminating them. And, and our response to them was, you don't want to do that. It, it, it's going to cost a lot of money. It, there's no winner in that. Just, you got to make it work. So they still did. They terminated the other contractor, um, brought us in. And, 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 and the way they understood that it was going to work was that they were going to hand us the guaranteed maximum price. They were going to hand us a schedule. They're going to hand us the contract, all the trade part. Basically, they're going to just dump everything on our desk and say, OK, you just need to finish. And, and, and that's where you know, we stepped back and said, well, that's not quite how it works. Uh, we spent uh, a lot of time and, and resources doing a full due diligence of the job. Where was the schedule really today? 
what is it really going to take to finish the job? And that's in cost. That's in general conditions. And we had to study the quality of the job. Is the quality effective? You know, is it good? I mean, we're going to own whatever we take over. And so what ultimately happens is you put in a whole new proposal that's very different and, and, and most likely more expensive and to do it right because there's a lot of risk. So, so my feeling is, number one, we never want to be in a situation where we're being terminated, whether it's for cause or convenience. And secondly, I would always recommend to owners it's got to be a last option, almost a nuclear option. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great point, that last point about recommending to the owners it should be the last option because it really should be as a matter of logic. I mean, they could they could have instead of made use of a deductive change order, for example, in the in the situation you brought up, and and then it's an interesting pricing issue because he's probably he or she's probably got a front end loader to start off with. Okay, what's it? Okay, what is it going to? You know, what's the proper value of that deductive change order versus you you terminate for convenience? In comes the terminating contracting officer, and you owe the contractor all his or her costs. Plus a reasonable right. profit thereon, you know, and so uh, it's it's a it's a way to talk the government out of taking a radical step, uh, you know. But nonetheless, they do it, you know. When we when we got out of Iraq, for example, some wise contracting officers were issuing deductive change orders. Then they got into termination for convenience, and then finally, as they ran out of money, <laughs> they got into terminations for default, figuring. That it'll be two or three years downstream till that termination for default gets converted to a termination for convenience, and then they would pay, be paying off. So it was yeah. a way of shifting the, the budget, <laughs> kicking the can downstream, you know, to for their costs. So, but um, completely unfair. But you know, it's a it, it's a great point you bring up. Well, let's talk about intersecting private and public work. Okay, seems to there's some there's some things going on here. Um, like for example, you mentioned. Construction managers at risk and, and construction managers agents. Okay, what are you? What are your thoughts on? Uh, are they? Are you seeing similarities now in the in the government and the private arena there? Uh, I, well, I think I think the government sometimes, certainly the states that I work with, they they struggle with the cement risk uh, because they wonder what does that risk mean, and and I think what happens is it is still more of a team approach. The contractor goes to the market. They have the documents. They put together a guaranteed maximum price, which you hope is the worst price you'll ever see versus a lump sum job, which the number you get will be the, you know, it's the least likely number you're going to pay it, yeah. you know. And and so what happens in that case is, but there still is risk in the project, right? Uh, there There's still risk of unforeseen conditions uh, underground. Uh, there may be design issues. Um, unforeseen conditions. So typically in a GMP, you will carry some type of contingency um, to prevent against those types of risks. Uh, maybe you, you had some bid issues. Um, but still, as far as the, the, the state is concerned or even the county or city is, to us, that's the price. You should never, ever get anything more. And to a contractor is, well, that's the, the price based on what we know and what we anticipate. But it doesn't cover everything. And, and that's where sometimes you get into disconnect. So an example would be uh, we're involved in a job recently where we ran into a whole bunch of rock underground and, and the borings didn't show it. And in the GMP, it was actually excluded in the base of estimates said, hey, we didn't see any rock based on our interpretation of borings. So it's not included. Well, then you hit the rock. And the first thing the owner says is, well, you should have known that was there. Why should I pay for that as a change order? 
And so those negotiations start. And that's when they start saying things. Well, what does seem at risk mean? It doesn't seem like you're at risk for much because you're not paying for the rock. And so part of that is just learning the process and, and, and different owners have different sophistication sometimes in these things. Or, you know, remember in the public agency, in the public environment, they have budget, they have funding and they can't exceed the funding. So then they're under a cap. And that's where, depending on where you, you, you fit in that cap, the negotiations can be a lot harder. You know, in the private arena too, you see CM agent, uh, CM agents. Okay, which is which another way. I mean, I, I I basically think of them as owners' reps. All right. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I, how often do you see that in the government arena? Do you see that hap- happening very often? I, I haven't. Uh, I, I do see the government sometimes bringing in uh, program managers to help them, uh, but usually it's it's what it's the GSA, you know, or they'll. Um, the Corps of Engineers and I was in the Air Force, right? They'd come in for all the big stuff. Um, but I, I have not seen agency because it's almost cost plus. And, and in the government, that's, they, they would interpret that as not protecting uh, taxpayer dollars, right? They want to, uh, hey, a- we want to ex- lock in. Excellent point. Excellent point. And, and they like their own teams, you know? I mean, otherwise they, they've got a, they've got a substantial contracting team or like you said, they bring in the Corps of Engineers and they don't need, they don't need an owner's rep. So that's right. Um, what about um, design build? All right, design build. Well, what's your what's your thought on design build in the in the government as compared with the you know the uh, the commercial world? Uh, you know, in the commercial world, it's so much as for example, like modular construction is you know it's a perfect place for design build and you know in, the, in that arena. But what about the government side? Well, I, I think what the government likes to see is they have one point of contact. So. I mean, there's always when things go bad, there's a lot of finger pointing. You know, the, the 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 contractor says, well, the designer didn't do it right. So I don't own it. It's a change. The designer says they didn't build it right. And you get into a lot of finger pointing and the owner gets caught in the middle a lot of times. And with design build option, they feel that, hey, I've got one point of contact. There's one person I get to blame and one person that has to solve things. And I should get a complete usable facility because they're designing it and they're building it. Um, but when you get into real complex projects, that gets harder. Um, you know, if you're building a standalone warehouse or you're building a standalone, even an office building, but when you put together a design build proposal, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of detail in there about what is actually included. And, and, and I think you and I talked earlier, um, a couple of days ago about what's included Well, the government has volumes and volumes of requirements. And, 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 and I, we, I've been involved with a project that fell into that trap because it was design build. We qualified everything. We designed it. We start building it. And all of a sudden, somebody, a contracting officer walks out there and they look, and I think it's for an FBI facility. And they said, you can't put that type of carpet in. And we said, well, well, sure. We, we, we put it in our proposal and we actually qualified it. And they said, yeah, but, but that doesn't, that doesn't meet paragraph X, Y, Z in volume 16 of the government <laughs> procurement regulations on what you can and can't put in an FBI facility. And so that was, that was a real surprise. And the contractor, design build contractor had to eat that cost because sure enough, in the contract, it says you will abide by government requirements. And, 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 and even though they qualified it to get the price where it needed to be, they were accountable for that. So that's another 
thing to be very careful about when you sign these government contracts, especially in design build, is what what do you owe the government versus what you're selling them in your price? Yeah, that is, I, I hadn't thought of that. That's a that's a a, a very good thought. Um, you know, and and they're not in a design build. You, you, you know, they've got to they have to identify what are their what what is the parameters of the design build. It give you some some specifics, but I mean to be on the hook for something that. You, you, know, you have to go research in the federal regulations, okay? To it's a scary proposition. Yeah, you know, thank God I don't see that much that many design build jobs coming out these days, though. You know, uh, I remember well, I remember when it first started with the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Uh, they're the ones who started the design build, but it just doesn't seem it didn't seem to maintain the momentum. Maybe because contractors didn't want to bid them. <laughs> I don't yeah, and I don't see. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't see the momentum even in public work. I think the owners, whether it's a, a public agency or a private, they want control of the design team. They they mm-hmm. want to be engaged in the design. They want to they want to pick things. They want to make sure they understand how it looks. They don't want to turn that over to a builder. And I think they always it's still traditionally they want to separate the two to some extent. Oh, good point. What about what about a PPPs? What's what's your what's your crystal ball? Uh, view yeah. on uh, uh, private public partnerships. Yeah, so so they were they were really big in the U.S. For I mean they were never really big, but they were big because it was a great way to finance new road construction. Right, you could uh, you could have somebody come in and and build a road for you, and you put some tolls on it, and and that company financed it for you. So the government got some got money, and then the only you know the only trade was hey we're going to let you operate this thing for X amount of years, and um, so those are very simple projects, uh, not as much risk. It started really in the UK, and it might have even been in Canada, but certainly in the UK, they started doing massive hospitals, uh, PPP. And so those are more complicated. And then in the US, you started seeing airports, right? I think LaGuardia Airport's a PPP. Uh, the tunnel uh, that's going out to, uh, it's over in your area. Um, but uh, To Norfolk, maybe. That's it, Norfolk. They're putting a new tunnel in. Um, I think what the challenge is, is these projects are bigger, they're more complicated, and they take a long time. And the day you sign the contract, you absorb a lot of risk, especially in an incredibly volatile market right now, where the materials are all over the price, escalation, you don't know where it's at, um, you're going underground. So I think some of the bigger I'm seeing a lot of the PPP contractors moving out of the U.S. Um, and, and they just they're not comfortable with that risk profile anymore. Um, and so I don't. We see lost. We lost the. Yeah, we lost the purple line here. Well, the purple line contractors, which was a you know above ground metro system, you know, and of course Denver Airport is like the biggest you know uh, engineering news record story on on PPP these days. So you know it's a well. Well, I don't know the contract. I don't know what the contracts say, uh, but I do. What's interesting is you look at LaGuardia. Okay, that's one of the largest PPPs in the company uh, country. I mean, sorry, and COVID hits, and nobody's flying anymore. Now, of course, the PPP their revenues are based on concessions in the airport, right? Ticket prices, all that stuff. So, so those are the types of things you say. Well, how do you manage that risk when you do these large, complex projects that take years to build? And and I just think that risk profile has gotten too too high for a lot of builders. 
All right, we're sort of getting to the ends of our podcast here. How about some crystal balls uh, thoughts from you, Scott? I mean, for example, on, you know, what, what, what are you doing about, we mentioned, we talked about negotiation contracts. What, what do you do about for the things like force majeure? Okay, what, what, where's that going? I think one of the things we've learned is we have to invest more time in understanding our contracts, understanding where the risk is, and either negotiating out or mitigating that risk. So force majeure is interesting because we've learned a lot since COVID hit, right? Who would have expected a pandemic would hit? And then how does that, that, imp- imp- that pandemic is impacting our projects. But now you have to go back and reinterpret things like no damages for delay, uh, force majeure. I mean, a lot of times, sometimes the force majeure will provide you days, but they will not provide you equitable compensation for the cost associated with that delay. So we've run into a couple of clients that have said, oh, yeah, we know COVID has shut the job down. We know that it's impacting it. We'll give you the days. And, and, and then our argument would be, well, wait a second, we have a whole bunch of people that are working on this job that just can't go to another job. And so there's a, there's a cost to us in trying to negotiate those costs um, and, and deal with those type of issues. How do you deal with the escalation that's happening into a volatile market right now because of COVID? Um, I, I saw a picture in the, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal today, that they were showing all these container ships all sitting off a harbor in California because they can't. Can't get into the U.S. and it's probably part of the Suez Canal thing. But the issue is the supply chain has really been impacted by the pandemic and shutting down factories and things like that. So that's driving the cost up in certain projects and the ability to get materials. So how do you deal with those type of issues when an owner just says, well, that's a force majeure or that's, you know, I'll give you time. So we have had to start being much more thoughtful about what are those key items in a contract. Like I said, there's no damages for delay, force majeure, liability, right? Exposure, some of those types of things we've been spending a lot more attention, you know, attention looking at to protect against unforeseen things like a pandemic. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of uh, legal heads uh, coming together on the various clauses that you should be putting in there for a force majeure. And then, but on the private arena, I mean, it, it really is real. I mean, just, just last week, um, my private owner negotiated with the contractor. His cost for lumber went up 175 yeah. percent. All right, and it be, it became it became we're and it's a very responsible contractor, but said I I I got to walk off the job here, and we're going to have a legal fight. And so, can you meet me somewhere? <laughs> so they they were met somewhere. It wasn't quite the middle, but we resolve we resolve the issue. But it's a uh, it's it's very scary. And um, what about you mentioned no damage for delay. I take it that's 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 a when you negotiate contracts now in the in the in the, in the commercial world. Okay, um, what's your what's your read on no damages for delay and what what needs to get needs to get done there or not done there? Well, I think what happens a lot is it was added to contracts, especially state contracts. We see it a lot is because they think that. Uh, builders, when they get just delayed for anything, whether it's weather or, or something, they were always coming back with their hands out to make money off damages, general conditions, all those different types of things. And 
And so they, they were saying, hey, you know, we're not going to just, we're not an open checkbook, right? But what happens is there are instances where, where we are delayed and it's delays beyond our cause. And maybe that's in COVID, right? Somebody gets infected and you have to shut the job down. Maybe uh, we're working on a job in Florida once again, where it was for a, for a city agency and the building was going up and we noticed some reflective cracking in the slabs all around the columns. So that was a red flag. We stopped. We notified the owner, the design team. And of course, at that point, everyone starts pointing fingers and getting lawyers and getting consultants. So the job shut down because it's a safety issue. We bring in the architect has their consultants. We have ours. The owner has theirs. We start posturing, documenting. We go through the whole process and it turns out it was the design team's. It was a design issue. So then the owner says, well, you know, I have a no damages for delay, so I'll pay you to make that fix. Right. That does, but I'm not going to pay you for the six to eight months that it took us to resolve it. And that cost us as a contractor a lot of money because, like I said, you, you just can't put people somewhere else for six months and then have them come back. We have to pay those costs. There was a lot of impact to us. Um, so we try, uh, in, in, especially in the public arenas, to say, hey, we, we, we need equitable uh, cost for those damages and we'll prove the damages. I mean, it's, it's, you know, one of these things where it's, if it, you know, if it's critical path, we can show the delays, we can show the impact to our team and those types of things. But, but there are, there are quite a few owners out there that not only don't they want to put it in there, but then the mitig- the other mitigating stra- uh, strategy you could say is, okay, well, I'm going to add three months to the job and all the general conditions that includes that, that at least mitigates some of the risk if I run into problems. And the first thing an owner says is, well, I'm not going to pay for that. I don't have enough money. And, and then you say, okay, well, how do we, <laughs> how do we come in between? And because there is a cost and there is a risk. And maybe if we shared the risk, it would be, we'd have a better outcome. You know, and the owners can, can deal with that risk. I mean, for example, you know, and deal with the potential impact to the contractor, not only for general conditions costs, but for impact by liquidating an amount. For example, if you show you've got a critical path delay, a true critical path delay, we'll, and, and, we're, and we, the owner, are responsible for it, we'll pay you a liquidated amount. Just fix a, a general conditions amount. That's, that's fair and reasonable. So there, there's ways, you know, to convince an owner to um, accept, accept that reality because you mentioned a word that's near and dear to my heart, a contingency, okay? In other words, owner, I'm going to put a fat contingency in my contract to cover these these things that you're taking this unreasonable stance on. So could you could you give me your views on on contingencies in general, both in a federal you know arena and in a, in a private arena here? Well, I, I think once again, there's a lot of risk in these projects. They're large, they're complicated. Um, we typically like to see two types of contingencies. We like to see a design contingency, because the design's evolving as you're going through the process and there is exposure there. And secondly, on the construction contingency, we do run into a lot of issues on a job site. And so we're, we're very open with sharing that. I mean, typically we put together a log and we, we go to the owner and say, hey, by the way, we want to use this contingency to address, you know, maybe we got a bid, bidding shortfall on some work where the, where the bidder didn't include certain work that still needed to be bought for the job and would have had to be paid for. But, you know, we would go pay for that out of the contingency and, or maybe there's damage in the job that we can't get insurance to pay for, but we can't, we can't identify who did the, 
damaged, so we got to fix these things. So there's all sorts of reasons we would use a contingency, and we're a very open book about it. Um, but what happens is the owners see it, and it's a way to pay for additional work, right? Additional scope. Yeah. And and a lot of owners will tell us, not as much in the government, but more public will tell us is they'll say, hey, we don't want the money back because if we get the money back, we have to give it back into some, you know, till somewhere, you know, or it goes to some other job. We want to spend every penny. So we do get put in a situation where we're trying to portion out parts of that without taking on too much risk. So the owner at the end of the day, it you know, they use all the money to get the product they want. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you want to, to certainly define who owns the contingency and what it's going to be used for. That's from, from, um, I guess one other thing here is, um, we talked about it the other day is limited, limited liability or limiting your liability. Can you give us some, some thoughts on, on, on that? Yeah. Well, we used to joke that that's the put you out of business clause. I mean, I mean, at some point we don't make enough money to, on some of these lawsuits that come out or the liability for something that could cripple a company. And, um, and I was thinking there were two recently, uh, that I thought were good examples is the Bonner Bridge to the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Um, they were building a new bridge. The contractor hit a power line going out to the Outer Banks and shut down all the power to the Outer Banks in the middle of the summer. So they had to evacuate, I think, like 50,000 people, shut down, think about hotels, restaurants, Airbnb, you know, all that stuff. And, and the only thing I kept thinking is about is, boy, I hope they had a limit to liability because that could be, I mean, that could be a tremendous burden. The other one, I don't know if you saw, but they're building a new bridge down in Pensacola, Florida. And apparently they were using these big barges to support construction and a hurricane hit. It was one recently and the barges got dislodged and one of them took out, you know, a big portion of the bridge. And the rest got thrown into the shore in like people's houses, restaurants, whatever, and had a huge economic impact to the panhandle of Florida. I think that's where that is. But but either way, that's a, that's another example as to what is that contractor's liability and do they have a cap on it or are they going to be in court for a long time dealing with all these lawsuits for lost revenue you know, certain impacts. And and so we typically like to make sure we can cap that liability at, at, at our fee or or somewhere that's more reasonable. Um and 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 also we have insurance and things too. But but the liability is a thing we really have to be careful about. Yeah. Well that brings us to the end. Scott, any other final comments that um that you'd want to make here on the um on our um podcast? Well, well, I really enjoyed uh, talking with you as always, Joe. I mean, we've known each other for a long time. And uh, uh, I just wanted to note that a lot of the stories I used are either, you know, are with projects I read about, projects I was engaged with, but I've worked for more than one firm. So I, I just want to <laughs> make sure that people understand these are examples that were used through 35 years um, and in uh, and, and those types of things. And um and if, if anybody ever wants any information on DPR, you know, it's DPR Construction and, and, and we're on the Internet. We're based out of uh, Silicon Valley in California. And uh, we're a young company. Well, we started in 1990 and we're now one of the I think we're in the large, probably top 10 builders in the U.S. So uh, uh, we've done a lot of growth in the few, last few years and uh, 
the market right now is volatile and we're, you know, kind of struggling through it. Well, I tell you, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here and it's a pleasure to see you again. <laughs> as often as I can get away with it, we'll get together. Um, I want to thank all the audience uh, for being with us today. Um, what we've done is, um, um, is what our, the podcasts are um, recorded and also transcribed, and you can find them on uh, our Sentinels webpage, which is Sentinel, that's with a C, that's the Elizabethan spelling of, of, the, of a Sentinel, all right? Sentinelconsulting.com, okay, you'll find the podcast, this, both, uh, this one with Scott, and also uh, the first one with Judge Paul Williams, and uh, uh, look forward to seeing you uh, in the future, uh, I think the next series of, of podcasts will be on the healthcare industry, one of the um, few industries which it clears, it clearly everyone believes is going to be very active in the in the next uh, in the next uh, year or two. So thanks again for everybody showing up and um, take care. Bye bye. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only, and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation.